Why you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12? John chapter 12, we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. We come this morning to Jesus' last public interaction with the crowds before he will be executed on a Roman cross. This is likely happening on Tuesday of his Passion Week. On Friday morning, he will be sent to Calvary's Hill. His whole life and ministry have culminated into this one moment as we approach the end of John 12. For over three years, he's walked among the people of the Jewish nation in and around Jerusalem. He's taught them the truth. He's undeniably proven that what he has said is true through these undeniable signs and miraculous, powerful interventions into their existence. And yet here he stands, just moments away from their full and final rejection of him. He has given himself to them. He's made himself available to them. He's given them proof after proof after proof. And yet he knows in a matter of moments, they, instead of saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they will say, crucify him, crucify him. Somewhere on Tuesday and Monday and Tuesday, he has told them what kind of king he would be, the one they lauded on Sunday. He now says, this is the kind of king I will be. And now they are on the brink of completely rejecting him as their king. Into that setting, which you know so well, Jesus preaches one last sermon. He has one last shot across the bow to this unbelieving crowd. And what a sermon it is. It's a sermon laying before them one last time the nature and the essence of Christ. It's a sermon which calls them to consider the deadly seriousness of their unbelief. It's a, a sermon in which he makes clear to them there's a day of judgment coming. It's a sermon in which Christ preaches about the greatest topic of which he can preach, and that is Christ. It is Christ's preaching of himself. That, by the way, has been John's purpose in writing this gospel, has it not? It's been a a spiritual propaganda document, as it were, in which he has written this gospel, this account of the life of Jesus, not so you can know facts and events, not so you can just listen in on conversations about Jesus' life with his disciples and learn interesting things that Jesus likes or dislikes. No, John has written this gospel because he has a point to prove and he is calling you to obedient faith. He is proving to you through the writing of this gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. That he, being the Messiah, is the Son of God, very God in the flesh. He's writing to convince you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's calling to tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved in him. He has done this in John's Gospel by laying before you seven powerful signs and seven clear statements of his character and nature, the I am statements. He's made known to you that this call to believe in Jesus has good proof. And he tells us that in John 20 that this is just a sampling of the many things he could have said about Jesus. And the whole point of the gospel inspired by the Spirit of God is what? To believe in the Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Now to do that, John has repeatedly told you the nature of unbelief or false faith. He does not want you to think you believe when you don't believe. 
He does not want to leave you on the lower rungs of initial belief and never move you along to, to true and actual belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so through his gospel, and he's got lots of material to work with, he exposes to you how the Jewish people themselves often don't believe. How they thought they believed, but they didn't believe. And so one of the, the prongs in his gospel to help you see and believe in Christ is to show you unbelief, to expose it, and to explain it. That's the context of Jesus' last sermon. This is an unbelieving crowd. They've moved past the skeptical. They've moved past the interested. They've moved past the, the slightly annoyed. They're now belligerent. They're now angry with Jesus and ready to reject him in completion. Into that unbelief, Jesus says one more thing. John 12, verse 36, the last part of verse 36 says this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given him, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Hear the words of Jesus about his nature of oneness with the Father, about his soon return and judgment of unbelief, and of what the nature of true belief looks like. I had high hopes of covering this whole section in one sermon, but alas, there is too much here, and you'll be thankful that I don't do it all at once. You'll be here longer than you want to be. The text obviously breaks down into two sections, and so we're going to split it into two times together, but it has one unifying theme. The first section is found in verses 37 to 43, and it lays out for us the reality and the nature of the crowd's unbelief. So John exposes their unbelief, and then he explains it. He helps us understand what's going on with it, particularly by appealing to Isaiah, the prophet. Then the second section, verses 44 to 50, are Jesus' words to the crowd, his last sermon, as it were, to this unbelieving crowd. He makes known the purpose of his coming, the nature of his mission, the clarity of his message, the reality of judgment coming, the need to believe in him. 
So I want to give our attention this morning to that first section, but you, you cannot understand the next section unless you understand the first section. Jesus' words in 44 to 50 are to the unbelief of 37 to 43. So we need to carry this with us into the sermon next week as well. Jesus is, or John, excuse me, is giving the context for Jesus' words in 44 to 50. As you think about the unbelief of the crowds, there's a bit of a mystery here, isn't there? You just think about the, the reality of what they've seen and what they've heard. You must scratch your head a little bit. Some, some human realism and logic would make you think, how have they missed it? How have they seen the, the miracles of Christ? How have they heard the authoritative teaching of Christ and still unbelieve? It's, it's kind of unbelievable unbelief, really. How is it possible? So John takes a minute and explains to you how it's possible. He exposes their unbelief and explains their unbelief to us. And I would hope as we work our way through this that this gives you greater confidence of trust in the Lord. And by that I mean, as you see unbelief exposed and explained, you are deepened in your trust in a sovereign God even over unbelieving crowds. That he did not miss this, that this did not take him by surprise and caught him off guard. But that from eternity past, he knew this is how they would react. And it was all part of his glorious and good plan. For those of us among us who have a false or a shaky faith in Jesus, I trust this text lays before you a robust and unshakable confidence in Christ. Maybe you're like the Sanhedrin of verses 42 and 43 where you're You're scared to confess Christ. May God, by his kindness, through the end of this sermon, bring you to clear, bold confession of faith in Christ. Let's look first at the reality of unbelief in verses 37 to 38. That's where John starts with his explanation. Remember, in the broader context, Jesus has been approached by some God-fearing Greek men, and they want an audience with Jesus. Jesus responds to their request by pointing all of them to his coming hour. He says there's an hour coming when the Son of Man will be glorified. He keeps talking, and you figure out rather quickly, he's talking about his crucifixion. He'll be glorified through being raised up on a cross and being put to death under the weight of sin. He confesses then that his soul is greatly troubled by that reality, the coming penalty of sin put upon him. He then declares that his death will accomplish three things. We talked about that last week. It will accomplish the judgment of the world and the casting out of the devil and drawing all men to himself. So though his soul is heavy and burdened by this, he is also glad and full of joy that it will accomplish this eternally good work. And then he ended that encounter with one last gospel call in verses 35 and 36. Walk in the light while the light is still among you. And then the end of verse 36, he withdraws. He pulls himself away from the crowd. He senses their unbelief. He knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to reject him. And he hides himself from them. He knew many in the crowd were plotting his execution. He just gave them lots more ammo to make that happen. He just equated himself with the Father yet again. He just made himself one with the Father in his words. And now he knows their hate-fueled unbelief will lead to them seeking his death. And so he withdraws from them in the moment. 
And now in verses 37 to 43, John enters in and gives you commentary on that. He explains that for you. And then in verse 44, Jesus is going to re-enter. I don't know what that all looks like. I don't know exactly when he says these words. John doesn't tell us. We don't really need to know. But the context is unbelief. So John wants you to understand it. So what's the reality of this unbelief? And, And John does for you here what John does in his gospel. He gives you deeper theological explanation than the other gospel writers have. Not that they did not give you theological explanation, but John goes deeper. John points further. He gives you the the broader scope of how this all impacts and is impacted by truth. So even though Jesus had done many more signs than they could keep track of, yet they still did not believe, John says. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record about 30 different miracles. John tells us in John 21 that if all of Jesus' miraculous signs and works were recorded, that not even the world could contain the books that could be written. All of those miraculous signs sit as a heavy weight upon the consciences of this crowd, and yet they are still unbelieving. John wants you to know that because he wants you to understand that evidence is not the problem. This is not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. Evidence is important and needed, but the evidence by itself is not going to produce true faith. These unbelieving Jews were predisposed to unbelief. And the many signs which Jesus did did not move them from that spot by themselves. It really is unbelievable, but it is to be expected. John gives this to you so you know what to expect in the world you face today. It's the same as the world Jesus faced in his day. It's unbelievable that people can have the evidence of the completed canon of Scripture. It's unbelievable that they can have the evidence of of archaeological proof. It's unbelievable that science continues to confirm the testimony of revelation in Scripture. It's unbelievable the amount of textual evidence that God has preserved for you to know that you have the word of God in your hands more than any other document of human history. It's unbelievable that God has given proof after proof after proof and yet myriads upon myriads exist in unbelief. Refusing to bow the knee to God as king and Lord. In fact, John goes on to say he says more than that. He says this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah said in chapter 53 of his prophecy. You remember that text likely you remember later verses 4, 5 and 6 that this servant of the Lord was had the iniquity of us all placed upon him that he was crushed for our transgressions and and wounded and bloodied for our healing. You know that text. But at the beginning of it, verse 1, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Isaiah 53, that prophecy is about a coming Messiah. And here John links it directly to Jesus. To say to you, Isaiah was speaking of, of this man and really of this moment, among others, but of this moment especially. The prophecy asks the question, who has believed what they have heard and what they have seen? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. 
who has heard what Jesus has said and who has seen what Jesus has done and yet continues in unbelief. John takes that text and helps you understand it in light of his current setting of massive, pervasive unbelief of the crowd. And he wants you to know what Jesus experienced is in correspondence with Revelation. This didn't just happen. It didn't just come across Jesus' radar screen and, oh no, what do we do now? No, this was before the foundation of the world, the triune God knew and planned for this rejection and unbelief. God had made plain in his prophecies hundreds of years in advance how it would go and how it would be. John himself in his own gospel predicted this, didn't he? John 1 and verse 10. You remember what John says in his prologue? He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So John's laying the groundwork for you in chapter 1 that this is how it's going to go for Jesus. So before you get into the testimony of the life of Jesus, know that the world is not going to know him and his own people are not going to receive him. It's going to be mass unbelief. God was prepared for this, planned for this, and used this for his sovereign purposes. Before we jump to the reason for this unbelief, I think it's crucial for you to remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem when this happens. Don't let this be missed on you. This is the, the center of the Jewish faith. This is where they come to worship Yahweh God. This is where, where they gather for their festivals and their acts of worship, their sacrifices and their songs of praise and adoration at the temple. And it's here in the, the center of their religion that Jesus faces the strongest opposition comes across the hardest of human hearts. Can we not take from that an axiom that the closer you get to the outward trappings of religious exercise, the harder the heart becomes? Our Utah team saw this in Salt Lake City. The closer we got to the external realities of Mormonism, the, the harder those hearts were the more convinced they were that their false religion was true, the, the less they had ear to hear a challenging question even expressed in love. They were caught up with and deceived by all the external trappings of religious exercise. They had no time for a serious consideration of the truth. Can I just say that might be you this morning in this room? You may have been for years connected in some way to the external trappings of organized religion as it relates to the church, even our church. You might be led to believe that somehow your, your connection to, your attendance with, and even your service in some capacity in the body is a guarantee that your soul is safe and sound. And over years of that, your, your heart may be hardened by that reality, your eyes may be further shut by these false assurances of your external efforts in religion when in reality Jesus is pressing upon your soul, calling to you to have real and true faith, to be born from above, to turn from your effort, 
from your work, from your accomplishments, from relying on the structures of men and saying to you, today is the day to look to Christ alone. He alone can save you. His work alone is sufficient for the rescue of your soul from your sin. If that's true of you, may today be the day where you do not continue in the hard-heartedness of the crowd in Jerusalem, that you turn in humble, trusting faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reality of unbelief. Here's then the reason for unbelief. This is in verses 39 and 40. John says that they could not believe, and then he quotes Isaiah again to explain that they, why it was they couldn't believe. He quotes a text from Isaiah 6 and verse 10. It's a, a text, if you read your New Testament, you're going to run across it several times. In fact, six different times. Every gospel writer quotes Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Paul in the book of Acts quotes Isaiah 6 and verse 10. Paul in the book of Romans quotes Acts, or Isaiah excuse me, 6 and verse 10. The text itself speaks to the Lord saying, I have blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So let's walk honestly and transparently through the text. What is this text saying about the crowd's unbelief? Is it saying that this is God's fault? That's how it kind of sounds at first reading, doesn't it? If, if you're reading that at first blush, you're not bringing all your theological categories to it, you're just trying to understand it. Doesn't it sound like John is saying they can't believe and it's God's fault. And quoting Isaiah 6 for proof. Well, upon further investigation, as you'll see, that cannot be what this text means. Not this text or any other text that has the same statement. This is not some act of God's sovereignty over human hearts which completely negates human responsibility. That is not what John is saying. That is not what Isaiah said. That God is just capriciously, without reason, entering into human existence, making hearts hard, making eyes blind so that they cannot see, so that he can use them for his purposes. That is not what the text says. It's not what John means. It's not what Isaiah means. Rather, as John already made clear to you, and as Isaiah makes clear, these people already don't believe. Their responsibility before the Lord is settled. They refuse to believe. If you've read Isaiah 1 or 2 recently, you remember how Isaiah exposes the unbelief of the Jewish people. Lays it plain that this is their character. They continue in the sham of outward externals, but they have no heart, true worship and faith in Jehovah God. The same is true in, in John's Gospel, verse 37. They do not believe, though the many signs the Lord had done. Verse 43, John assigns a motive to their lack of true faith, that they love the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. That's, a, that's human responsibility right there. They have chosen to not believe in God. They have turned from him in their depraved state. You must also remember where this description comes in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is not on day one, right? We're not in John 1. We're not when John the Baptist introduces Jesus where we are told they couldn't believe because God hardened their hearts. No, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. For three plus years, he has 
faithfully, fervently, boldly proclaimed the truth about himself and proven that truth with miraculous deeds. They've been hearing his message and seeing his signs for quite some time. And what has been their continuous posture? What is it? Unbelief. They refuse to believe. This culminates in this final week of our Lord's life. They are in God's sovereign estimation beyond being able to believe. The Lord has hardened here their already hardened hearts. He has further blinded their already blind eyes. This is what is known in the Bible as a judicial hardening of God. It's a work of God to bring about further hardening in the heart of influential people so that he can accomplish something which brings him great glory. This is, by the way, the judicial hardening of Romans 1. You know that text? Where the wrath of God has appeared upon mankind because we have suppressed the truth of God. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So we, having exchanged God, having refused to believe God, what does God do for us? He gives us over to our sinfulness. This is an act of judgment upon sinful humanity. It's God giving us over to what we want, to what we pursue, and to all of its wicked ends. And if you have any question mark in your mind of whether or not America and the West in general is under the judgment of God, is all you need to do is see what it is that God in his sovereignty has ordained and allowed to occupy the highest offices of the land what we celebrate, what we push, what we say is normal, calling evil good and good evil, that is evidence that God is standing in judgment over our land. Because he's given us over to the things we have said in our sinfulness we want. That is a similar thing happening to this crowd in John's gospel. John says that what's happening here at the end of Jesus' ministry is that they've refused to believe They've plotted his death. They've wanted him to be the Messiah of their own making. They've refused to bow the knee of worship and service. They've loved his power. They've wanted more bread. But they've rejected his righteousness and his truth. And therefore they were further hardened. You've probably already thought of this, but it's very similar to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, right? That's the clearest example in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, of a hardened heart being further hardened in judicial judgment by God. So you remember the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are in captivity under the mighty authority of Pharaoh. It's the the most powerful nation in the world. God sends Moses to set his people free. He sends them with a message and with a clarity of purpose. Pharaoh will have none of it. Moses continues to address him and calls him to let God's people go and he refuses to. If you look at the book of Exodus and, and let's say you pull up your Bible software program and you search in the book of Exodus for this phrase, hardened heart, you will find 20 occurrences. Hardened heart in the English translation, 20 occurrences. As you read through those occurrences, you'll find that 10 of them refer to Pharaoh hardening his heart or the state of his heart was a hard heart. 10 of them will refer to God hardening Pharaoh's heart 
as an act of judgment upon Pharaoh to guarantee his purposes. Well, what was God's eternal, sovereign, good purpose with Pharaoh? To use his hardened unbelief, further hardened by a sovereign God as an act of judgment, so that in Egypt God could proclaim his glory through miraculously rescuing his people. The ten plagues, namely the last one, as the death angel passed over, the children of Israel spared. Pharaoh, even in his hardened state of unbelief, says, get out. They flee. His heart changes because it didn't really change. It was still hard. He pursues after them to kill them in the desert. God parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry ground as a sovereign act of immense power. Pharaoh chases them in. The waters come tumbling upon him and his horde of soldiers, and they all die. And God is what? Glorified. He rescued his people. The testimony of that work precedes them into the promised land. And the people in the promised land are scared of this God of the Israelites because of what he did to the Egyptians. You see, this was not some meaningless action by God upon some morally neutral king. As though he was just some innocent monarch in some far distant country who God just had a beef with and took it out on him. No, Pharaoh hated God. Pharaoh thought himself to be God. Pharaoh worshipped Pharaoh. Pharaoh refused to believe the revelation and words of the real and true God. Pharaoh refused to submit himself to the clear evidences of this God from heaven upon his land. And God further hardened his heart to guarantee his purposes of sovereign deliverance. It's the same thing happening in John 12, right? Don't you see parallels? These religious leaders are in charge of the nation of the Jews. They have authority over God's people. They have been presented with God's Messiah. He's given them ample explanation and ample proof that he is who he says he is, that he's there to bring in the kingdom of God to earth. And in their unbelief, their hardened hearts, they have closed their eyes and covered their gaze and refused to believe. John says, quoting Isaiah, God has further hardened their hearts. Why? Because there's something that needs to happen on Friday. And God's going to make sure it happens on Friday as his son gives his life as a ransom for many. And he does that through the hardening of hearts of those in political authority over the Jewish people. This Jesus will be arrested and tried in a mockery of justice, condemned for crimes he didn't commit, beaten and flogged mercilessly, eventually crucified upon a Roman cross. And that shame will be our Lord's greatest glorification. It will be in his execution at the hands of these hard-hearted and spiritually blind leaders of their own doing and of God's judicial hardening that Jesus will secure your redemption. That Jesus will complete your forgiveness of your sins. This is the reason for their unbelief. But this unbelief also has a remedy. You must know that. Verses 41 to 43, there's a remedy for unbelief. 
and a glorious one it is. These verses present this amazing contrast between Isaiah and the authorities who believed in Christ. It's an amazing text. John gives his commentary on Isaiah in verse 41, and he says that Isaiah did these things. He said these things in his prophecy because he saw God's glory and he spoke of him. Then in contrast to Isaiah in verses 42 and 43, he gives us commentary on the many in Jewish authority who believe but refuse to confess. You see the contrast here? Isaiah, the prophet of God, sees the glory of Christ in Isaiah 6 and confesses, testifies boldly of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, seeing the glory of Christ before their very eyes, refuse, though they believe, refuse to profess. They are cowardly in their faith. What made the difference? Well, what made the difference is the remedy to unbelief. This is the fix for cowardly unbelief. So follow the logic of the text. John quoted Isaiah 6.10. It's a statement about God's judicial hardening of Israel. He says this crowd who's rejected Jesus is a fulfillment of Isaiah 6.10. Then verse 41, John says that Isaiah said that because he saw his glory. Now, who is Isaiah seeing the glory of? What is John talking about? When did Isaiah see the glory of the Messiah and therefore boldly profess of him in his prophecy? Well, it's in Isaiah 6. Turn there with me. You need to see it. Isaiah 6. This glorious prophecy in our Old Testament. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh, all caps Lord, the Yahweh of hosts, Jehovah God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest with their eyes and lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I wonder if in this encounter, if God had spoken to Isaiah and said, here's your message. Go and proclaim it. If he still would have said, before he saw the glory of the Lord, would he still have said, here am I, send me. I think not. I think God in his sovereignty appeared first to Isaiah in all of his glory. Because he knew he was going to commission, commission him to an incredibly difficult task. What is that task? It's a message of judgment and condemnation upon an unbelieving people. It's a message that they will not receive and cannot hear. It's a message that he must speak faithfully, but that will not be believed upon by God's people. And I say to you again, remember, where in the chronology of God's redemptive history are we? Where in the timeline of God's work in Old Testament Israel are we? We're at the end. We're in 700s B.C. They've had 700 years in the land. Conquest of, of Joshua in 1400s B.C. They've had the establishment of the kingdom. They've had the, the fracturing of the kingdom. They've had one king after another lead them into idolatry of other gods, worship of other gods. God has patiently, persistently called them through the mouth of the prophet to repent and return, to worship him alone. He has, he has put up with them for hundreds of years. And now, at the end, even a hundred years before it will all end, he sends another prophet and he says to Isaiah, go and tell them, this is it. You will be taken into exile. You will face the judgment of the curse of the law of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. But know that I will return you to this place those who seek the Lord will find the Lord, he says in Isaiah 55. It's a prophecy of, of hardening of unbelieving, hardened hearts. And John says to you in John 12 that Isaiah was faithful to do it. Why? Because God told him to? No, because he saw the glory of of Christ. Isaiah 6 is a heavenly vision given to Isaiah of the Son of God seated on his glorious throne. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus the Messiah. He's given this vision of the glory of Christ so that he will never fear men. So that he will be arrested by and consumed with the glory of the Lord. I want you to see that back in John 12 in contrast to the Pharisees and the chief priests and members of the Sanhedrin who believe but will not profess. What John is saying to you in, in chapter 12 of his gospel is that Isaiah spoke clearly because he saw the glory of Christ, but... These chief priests and Pharisees would not speak boldly because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, they love their power and their position and their prestige. They have some kind of infantile, beginner-like faith. In some way, they've, they've seen and heard Jesus talk and they believe he is, 
is right or probably right that he is the Messiah. But they're captured in the machinery. They're caught by the reality of their system. They, they can't break free and profess faith in Christ because it will put them out on their hind end. They will have no relationships in their culture, in their society, in their town. They will lose everything to confess belief in Jesus. Now, who are these men? We know some of them. We know Nicodemus of John 3, right? Came to Jesus at night in cover of darkness to investigate, is this Jesus the Messiah? We know from, from John 19, that another one is Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, who also had some kind of belief that Jesus was the Messiah and offers his unused tomb near Calvary to house the body of Jesus. We don't know really anything more about those men from there on in the gospel. In some way, they had an infantile faith in Jesus, but they were unwilling up to that point to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Now, praise God for his patience. And his ongoing revelation, as you read the book of Acts, you remember in chapter 7, I believe, 6 maybe, where it says, many of the priests believed. That's just weeks after Calvary. Many of those in the system, in the machinery of Judaism, see the glory of Christ in the resurrected Jesus. They hear the prophecy of the apostles. They see the signs of the apostles and they are drawn to believe in Jesus as the Christ and they're willing to leave it all to follow him. That's a difference from John 12. But in John 12, what's the problem? They're caught by the fear of man. They refuse to publicly own their faith. They won't fall into the ground like a grain of wheat and die in order to follow Jesus, as he said back in verses 25 and 26. They won't renounce all that they have and pick up their cross and follow Jesus. They count their lives as too precious to themselves. And why? Because they haven't seen the glory of Jesus as the Christ. They've been blinded by the glory and praise of men they don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Friend, do you see the remedy for your unbelief? Whether that's unbelief, which is crowding in on true faith, trying to put out your smoldering wick, trying to stamp out whatever true faith you have, or whether it's unbelief that's going to condemn you to an eternity apart from Christ. You know what the remedy of that is? to see truly that the fear of man and the desire for glory and acceptance from others needs to be put to death by a greater glory. You need to see someone higher and more glorious and more good. You need to, to see that the shame of God is far worse than the shame of man. You need to see that Christ is glorious beyond all and worthy of faith and obedience. So friend, maybe you're more like the Jewish authorities than you are like Isaiah. Maybe your faith is more private than public. More personal and less pronounced. Maybe you know you believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, but you have so far been unwilling to say much about it. Sure, you'd confess it if someone pressed you into the corner and asked you about it, but you haven't been overly bold about it all. Maybe even 
backing up the train before that. Maybe you, you know you need to be baptized as public confession of your faith in Jesus and yet you've been unwilling to do so up to this point because you're afraid of others and of the shame that you perceive might come upon you if you own Christ publicly. Maybe you've been lacking in your bold testimony and witness to coworkers and neighbors and random people you meet in the course of life because you, like me, are afraid of what they'll think of you walking away. What's the answer here? What's the great antidote to that kind of fear of man? It is always a greater fear of the Lord. It is always to see the greater glory of Christ. It is to replace what glory you think you have from men with the glory of Christ alone. So friends, as we close our time together, I ask you, what does the Lord want you to do in response to this text preached to your heart today? This has been a divine appointment. He has had you here, this text appointed, working through this moment to speak to you. These things are easy to hear and move on and be hearers and not doers. Where is the Lord your God pressing these truths upon your heart? What is it that he desires of you? How does he want to encourage and edify and challenge, maybe even rebuke you? How does he want you to grow in your faith and your expression of faith as you follow Christ? As we close our time of prayer, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and think of that before the Lord by yourself, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we often busily hurry about thinking little of how you would have us to grow and change in response to the word. We ask that you would drive these nails home into our hearts, that we might be consumed with the glories of Christ, as was Isaiah, so that we would be moved to his kind of faith and his kind of bold obedience. Help us, Father, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. In response to God's word, we want to together declare our allegiance to our Savior. Please stand.
want to invite you back for our evening worship. We have a great evening planned of uh, coming before the Lord, rejoicing in Him, hearing how He's working in us and around us. So I invite you back at 6 o'clock. Our Utah team will be giving their update, and Pastor Larry will be preaching. We also have a snack afterwards, so there's details in the bulletin of what to bring, so you can enjoy not just fellowship, but the food you help bring as well. Uh, And if there are any young, strong men who want to help set up for that, our elders will be in the gym right after the service here. If you want to help them out, that would be a tremendous blessing to them. They'd much rather be directors than carriers. So if you can help them do that, they would appreciate that very much. Um, So look forward to that time together tonight right after the evening service. As we go our way, consider a man who put his hand in the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. Thomas himself, wondering, questioning, weak in faith, saw the greater glory of Christ. And what did he say? My Lord and my God. May that be our confession this week from our mouth and with our life. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.